Psalm chapter 7. Hear now the word of God. A Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there's none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is any injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the peoples, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes arrow, his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. Verse 16, his mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Would you bow with me? Father God, help us in the moments to come to comprehend what You have revealed to us in Your Word, uh, to understand uh, what David is trying to get us to understand about Your righteousness, about Your vindication about your salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So David composes Psalm 7 in response to some opposition, some hostility that he's facing now that he's king. He composes it in response to opposition from Cush the Benjamite. That, that's all we know about Cush the Benjamite. There's nothing else in Scripture about Cush the Benjamite. Now we do know that King Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin. And it's likely that as David ascends to the throne that there's some people who aren't too happy about the fact that David has ascended to the throne and it's moved from the tribe of, of Benjamin to the tribe of Judah. So there's some people left around with some sour grapes, if you will, and one of them is Cush. Cush likely represents a faction relatively early in his kingdom that wants to undermine, therefore, David and what God wants to do through his anointed king. Cush was basically living up to what Jacob prophesied of the tribe of Benjamin. Back in Genesis 49, verse 27, Jacob says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. In verse 2, David says, Unless the Lord saves him, 
Cush will tear his soul apart like a lion. It's often the case, is it not? It is often the case that when God begins a great work, it will encounter great opposition. God has found his king. He's found the shepherd boy out in the fields. He's anointed him. He's appointed him. He's raised him up. And here's Cush, the Benjamite, with sour grapes who wants to undermine the work of God that he intends to do through King David. David was under enormous stress. And he understands his only hope for deliverance is that God would deliver him. You see that in verse 1? He, he asked for God to save and deliver him. If God does not do that, look at verse 2, there will be none to deliver him. Do you understand that this morning? That if you don't let God deliver you from your enemies, not just your human enemies, but from sin and selfishness and Satan, if you don't let God deliver you, there's no deliverance for you. Either you run to God or there's, you won't find deliverance. And anything else the world affords you, you cannot find deliverance in any other source. Perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe you're trying to raise a, a teen for the gospel and they're being defiant. Maybe you're trying to love your husband or your wife to Jesus and they're just ripping your soul apart with every time you try to show them the love of God. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher faithfully pray, uh, praying and preparing every week, asking God to make your class a, a class that's not just a social club, but it's a champion class for the Great Commission that's outreaching and bringing people in and winning people to Jesus, but nothing seems to be happening and you feel like the enemy is winning and gaining control and it's going to tear your soul apart. If that's where you are this morning, I want you to be encouraged by Psalm 7. It's a psalm that, as Kidner writes, moves from the intensely personal plea of a man who is betrayed and hounded to the conviction that God is judge of all the earth. In other words, that God's going to win. And if I'm on his side and I'm working on his team, that God's going to work it out. So that wickedness, the opposition that I'm facing, is ultimately self-defeating. And so David ends, very different from where he begins, he ends with confidence and praise to the God of righteousness. What is our hope when we are misjudged, falsely accused, and wrongly attacked, and the work of God is threatened as a result? Our hope is found in David's delight in the overcoming, surpassing, unstoppable righteousness of God. Look at verse 17. David declares, He will give thanks according to or because of the righteousness of, that God has and that He will sing to the Lord Most High. He moves from despairing of destruction to delighting in the righteousness of God. And let's face it, when we delight in God, what do we most often delight in? We, we delight in His grace and His mercy. But too often, we neglect to rejoice in God's righteousness. But we should delight in His righteousness. He is God most high. He is over all the stuff that seems to be opposed to us. When it seems that God is out to lunch, God is still in control. There is a God who is righteous and who is supreme over all that we face. And one day, He is going to set all things right. When we trust in Christ and live for Him, the righteousness of God goes from our burden to our delight. Some of you this morning don't like to think about the righteousness of God because you're not living righteously. You're not living for God. It, you can't sing with confidence, no guilt in life, no fear in death, because you do fear the righteous standard of God. The righteous standard of God is not something that you can delight in because you're not delighting in that God. You're not living 
before that God. The confidence that we have, the delight that we have in the righteousness of God comes when we are aligned with the God who is righteous. So we see very, very quickly four things that we must do if we're going to delight in the Lord according to His righteousness. First, we must take refuge in the Lord. Second, we must walk in righteousness. Third, we must trust that God will deliver us by dealing with our enemies. In other words, God's got it. I don't need to take it into my own hands. God's got this. And finally, we must repent before we reap sin's consequences. First, we must take refuge in the Lord. This is a Something we've seen over and over again in the Psalms. The basis of David's plea for deliverance is that he has already taken refuge. He's already found protection in the Lord. King David has done what Psalm 2.12 tells us to do. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. David has found the gladness that comes from taking refuge, seeking protection, not in his own ability, not in his own strength, but in God who will protect him. Which is why he writes in Psalm chapter 5, verse 11, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. But for some here this morning, the gladness that comes in giving our lives into the Lord's hands has worn a bit thin for you. Because you've failed to walk in His way by relying on your own ability to escape the dangers of our enemies. Whether they're people or pet sins or self-serving attitudes that we accommodate rather than trying to kill in our lives, when we tolerate sin on the inside, we end up not being able to delight in the righteousness of God. You see, the salvation that God gives us cannot be genuinely enjoyed unless we walk in God's righteousness. The salvation that God gives us cannot be genuinely enjoyed unless we're walking in God's righteousness. So secondly, not only do we believe in the Gospel, not only do we take refuge in Jesus, we also need to live for Jesus, which is what David moves to in verses 3-5. through five. David understands that God's deliverance must be in accord with God's character. And I must say to you pastorally, one of my greatest concerns... One of my greatest concerns, church, is those who say they've believed in Jesus and have give no evidence in their life that they've believed in Jesus. I've believed in Jesus, but I don't care about the local church. I've believed in Jesus, but I'll come to the local church on Sunday and live uh, for myself on Monday through Saturday. I'm not saying, church, that we're perfect, but but if we can tolerate that attitude on a week-in and week-out, month-in and month-out, year-in and year-out basis, David is saying to us, there's something wrong. You can't delight in the righteousness of God just by saying, I prayed a prayer when I was 10 or 7 or 17, and I haven't lived for Jesus the rest of my life. We must walk in the righteousness of God. In verse 3, David says boldly, if I have done this. In other words, if there's something that I've done, if I've done something wrong, then let the enemy do exactly what he wants to do. Let him overtake me. Let him bury me and my glory in the ground. Any significance that I may have, let it be put in the ground. Put my glory in the dust, verse 5. Let this enemy pursue me and chase me and overtake me and take possession of me and then trample me underfoot as Christ will do. 
to all those who are playing games when He comes again in judgment. Here's what David says. If I'm guilty of what I'm charged with, then God, let the enemy give me what I deserve. But, but Lord, I'm innocent. I am walking in Your way. I haven't just taken refuge in You. I am endeavoring to live for You and to give my life for You. And he declares in verse 3, there is no injustice in His hands, no deed or act that is contrary to what is right. David has not accepted a bribe, and he has not done any other unjust thing with his hands. He understands that God has given him an authority. This is, this is key. God has given him an authority that is not to be compromised by backroom deals that threaten to undermine God's work. God's work is a squeaky clean work. When we are under attack for our relationship to God's King and the role that He has given us in expanding God's kingdom, there is nothing like the confidence that comes with clean hands motivated by a pure heart. It's very different from the picture we get in Washington, D.C. right now. Whether you're a donkey or an elephant, let's face it, neither team seems to be concerned with integrity. They're concerned with perception. They're concerned with one-upping in the media. It's not about whether or not I sent the email. <laughs> sure, I sent the email, but I don't want you to find it, so I'll hide it on a server or whatever else. And that's just the D's, but the elephants are just as guilty. And nobody cares about integrity in Washington anymore. That ought not to be the disposition that characterizes the church. The church cares about integrity and purity. And when there's a challenge that comes... Read the emails. Read my heart. I'm an open book because my desire has been to glorify and honor King Jesus in the expanse of His kingdom. Integrity gives great confidence in the face of enemy opposition. David also declares he has not rewarded evil, verse 4, to a friend. A friend here, the word is literally a person of peace. In other words, it's somebody who wanted to be on the same team. They wanted to help you out and, and maybe there was a minor or inconsequential offense that occurred and then instead of letting it go, the enemy planted it and fertilized it until, until it became a major root of bitterness against someone who was a friend. The word reward means to ripen. In other words, rather than just moving on, with the person of peace in the gospel, they harbored a grudge and they planted it and they fertilized it and it ripened into a root of bitterness that threatened the relationship and what God wanted to do. But David's proper conduct, he tells us, extends even to his enemies. We see this in David's life. He has the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave. He doesn't do it. David's words show us the power and the confidence that comes from holy living. When you come under enemy attack, the only thing stronger than the ravenous wolves of Benjamin who tear souls apart is the lion and the son from Judah from whom Jacob, of whom Jacob prophesies. Judah, remember this in Genesis 49, Gen Judah is a lion's whelp. 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? Who defeats the enemy that wants to tear you apart? It is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is the king of Judah who walks with integrity in his heart. You see, David is pointing us to a greater David. David is still a sinner who needs saving. He's still a sinner who has to take refuge in the Lord. But one day, the Lord God Almighty would become a man and he would live the life that we should have lived and he would die the death that we deserve to die and his glory would be laid in the dust. His body would be laid in the dust. The enemy of our sin and our selfishness would attack him and he would allow it to nail him to the cross, which is what we deserve to do. And he would take the place for us so that we could take refuge in him, that we could walk in integrity and that we could be a part like David of expanding the kingdom of God. And on the third day, when that greater king rose up, we gained a share in his glory and the promise that no matter what assails us, no matter what enemy attacks us, that we can walk in His integrity, trusting that one day we will be raised up with Him. David is saying, now that I have trusted in You, God, I am living for You. So my confidence right now, God, is not in who I am, but in whose I am. That I belong to You, God, and I'm walking before You with a clean conscience, trusting You that You will prevail. And that I will share in your victory. The key to delighting in a righteous God is walking in His righteousness. There's some of you here this morning, you know you you prayed a prayer. You know that you even trusted Jesus and that there was a season of delight in your life. But then you, you sinned. You did something that was embarrassing. And rather than confess it, You covered it up or you left the church where you sinned and then you found another church and then you sinned there and then you left that church and you covered it up and you've spent your whole life running from your sinfulness, running from your unrighteousness rather than running to Jesus and running to your brothers and sisters in Christ and gaining healing in the gospel so that you can again delight in a God who is righteous. We can delight in the God who is righteous when we return to being a people who've been called out to live righteous lives. Thirdly, we must trust that God will deliver us by dealing with our enemies. Verses 6 through 11. Some here this morning may think that it doesn't matter how you live. It's all about the grace of God, but not too concerned about the righteousness of God. C.S. Lewis writes this, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were an obvious nuisance, are inclined to feel, though we don't put it into words, that we are now good enough. As we say, I, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine when we say this that we are being humble, but this is the fatal mistake. You see, to truly take refuge in God, it must be in the God of righteousness. And the God of righteousness has a lifetime for you of becoming more and more holy, of unearthing more and more of the 
the selfishness and the sinfulness of our lives and to be able to bring it before Christ and to let Him crucify it afresh and make us more like Jesus. To truly take refuge in God, it must be in the God of righteousness. Some of you are seeking solutions to your life's problems by adding a little dash of religion on the side but still trying to serve yourself. Faith that dismisses the righteousness of God is not saving faith. Faith that dismisses the righteousness of God is not saving faith. This is a critical statement. If you come to the Jesus who is gracious and kind and long-suffering, but miss the fact that His grace is pertaining to His righteousness, the fact that He is holy and that He is above all and that He is God Most High and that there is a debt that we could not pay, that He had to pay for us, we are missing out on an element of saving faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. David has confidence in the judgment that God has appointed or commanded. He's, faced, he's in a world that's full. It's thick of enemy opposition. And what is David's confidence? It is that God has appointed a judgment. The world looks to the judgment of God and cowers in fear. The one who is walking with God looks to the judgment of God and says, thank God there's a God of justice and righteousness and one day He will vindicate me and vanquish my enemies and I will be able to live for Him without any opposition. As Kidner writes, justice will mean salvation for the two coincide when God tries the case of the oppressed. In other words, David is ready. Do you see his language in verses 6-11? through 11? He is ready for God to stand up in his anger. To be lifted up against his enemies. To rouse himself. To wake himself up, verse 6, against his enemies. It's not, God's not asleep. But sometimes it feels like God's asleep. When you're stuck in the mire at work trying to share the gospel and somebody's making fun of you week in and week out, when you're, when you're laboring in the fields of a marriage or parenting and it doesn't seem like you're making any progress with your grandkid and it seems like the enemy is winning, sometimes it feels like God is asleep. And David says, God, I'm ready for you to wake up, for you to take control, for you to intervene and to eliminate the enemies in my life. Of course, we know that he who keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers, but from our perspective, it can feel that way. So David takes the long view. He takes the eternal view. A view that looks to a day when there aren't just Israelites in David's kingdom, but there are an assembly of peoples, verse 7, encompassing or surrounding the God who has come for them. And when the Lord returns for His, his people, it means both salvation and Judgment. This is critical. When the Lord returns, there's going to be a great salvation and there's going to be a great judgment. Jesus comes, John 3 tells us, to save and not to condemn. But the very presence of Jesus, because He is so righteous and good and pure and holy, it's a, it's a cleansing presence. And what that means, when He comes again, though He comes to save His people, His very salvation will mean judgment for those who do not belong to Him. When our righteous judge, verse 11, 
who has anger every day against wickedness, verse 11, when he returns, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous will eternally diverge. They will no longer be commingled. We will no longer face enemy hostility and opposition and sinful desires. The way of the wicked will end in everlasting destruction. And the way of the righteous will find vindication because God the righteous is a shield. Do you see that verse 10? He is a shield to those who are pursuing His righteousness. I think a good picture of the simultaneous judgment and salvation of God is Noah. We often think about the story of Noah as being a story of God's judgment. All those people died. All those people were condemned. All those people were judged. But God also saved through judgment. How? By providing an ark and a man. And the waters that were separated in creation were reunited in creating the flood that overwhelmed the world. And Peter tells us that God washed the world. He renewed the world. And He made a new world for His new man, Noah, to start over. And Noah, unfortunately, wasn't Jesus, and so we had to wait. But there is a greater ark, and there is a better shield, and His name is Jesus. And when the overflowing floodwaters of God's judgment finally come, and the sinful thoughts and attitudes and behaviors and the enemy opposition that we face, is that's still here when Jesus comes again he makes it disappear once and for all and we will worship and behold our king in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth without enemy opposition forever and ever and ever and David looks to that day and he says stand up God make it so make it so to truly be a saving God, God must clear the way of unrighteousness. He is so good. He is so holy. He is so righteous. He cannot tolerate an unrighteousness that persists. And if we truly take refuge in the Lord, His unrighteousness, His righteousness becomes our defense. Because His righteousness becomes our righteousness. As we pursue Him more and more with our hearts and our minds. Do you see that in verse 9? He's one who tests the hearts and the minds. And He gives us integrity or wholeness on the inside. Verse 8. Do you see that? David says, my integrity. My righteousness. But, but at the end of verse 17, he talks about his righteousness. How is this? Because when we trust in God and we allow God to shape and to mold our heart, the righteousness that God has becomes a righteousness that we exhibit with our lives. The psalmist, David, does not fear God's judgment, but rather welcomes it because he is certain that he will be found innocent. What a way to live. God, come on back in judgment. Because I am living with a clean hands and a pure heart. Finally, if we're going to delight in God's righteousness, we must repent before we reap sin's consequences. I don't know about you this morning, but David's a pretty impressive guy, at least in Psalm 7. And I don't always have entirely clean hands and an entirely pure heart. But look at what David says of his enemies. 
It's amazing to me what David says in verse 12. He's been wrongly persecuted by his enemies. And what does he want for them? Do you see what he says in verse 12? If a man does not repent, he wants for them not to be vanquished in God's judgment. He would prefer that they would repent. And that's my prayer for you. Maybe you've been lingering in a sinful attitude or a wrong attitude or a disposition for way too long. And what David would want for you and what I would want for you and what Jesus would want for you is that you would turn from your sin before it's too late. That you would be able to afresh delight in the righteousness of God. Repentance is needed, by the way, because God is a warrior against everything that is opposed to His righteousness. The God who establishes the righteous is also the God who has His bow ready. He has established it. He's prepared His deadly weapons, verse 13. He's prepared the flaming arrows to come against our unrighteousness. You see, God is either with you in the battle or you are against Him in the battle. And if you are against God in the battle, the promise of God's Word is that you will lose because nothing stops the righteousness of God. In verse 15, the wicked are like people digging a hole for someone else, but then they fall into it. In verse 16, the sins of the wicked one return on his own head and on his own pate. I didn't know what a pate was, but it's just the crown of your head. It's just the word head again. They return on his own head. Why? Because God unleashes the bow and the arrow flies and the consequences of our sin are borne by the sinner rather than the Savior if we do not trust in Him and live for Him. You cannot delight in the righteousness of God in verse 17 until you turn from your sin. Verse 12. This is why we talk about sin at North Roanoke Baptist Church. Because we want you to delight in God who is righteous. We don't talk about sin to make you feel terrible. We don't talk about sin to make you feel awful. We talk about sin because sin is the thing that prevents you from truly delighting in God. And God is righteous. And if you're not enjoying your salvation, it is likely that there is something that is standing between you and the holy God who has called you up into salvation. It's why we practice church discipline. It's why we say to those, when you join North Roanoke Baptist Church, that you are joining to help us live more for Jesus. And you are saying to us, I want you to speak truth into my life and to help me live more for Jesus. If you see a wrong attitude or a wrong behavior, don't clam up and say, I could never say something to him. Say, I want you to speak truth to my life because I want to enjoy the righteousness of God. What keeps us from true joy, dear brother, dear sister, is our sin. And we can pretend it doesn't exist. We can come to Sunday school and put our coat and tie and dresses on and we can sit and chat and talk about the Hokies and how they're going to dominate UVA again this year. And that's, that, that's fun to talk about. But there's a deeper level that God is calling us to. A deeper level of transparency. A deeper level of conversation. And if you will be the first to open your heart to say what you struggle with and to invite people in your life to hold you accountable, to speak truth into your life, there is a joy unspeakable that God has for the Christian who has taken refuge in Christ 
the King. To rejoice in the righteousness of God. To know something of the glory that awaits those who hope in God. We've got to take refuge in Jesus. We've got to live for Christ. We've got to find hope in God's coming judgment. And we must turn from our sin. So my admonition to you this morning is don't leave today without being able to say with King David, I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we're humbled at exactly how high you are. There's nothing in this world, in this universe, that you are not over, that you are not greater than, that you are not better than. And yet, God, the righteousness that you are and that you possess is a righteousness that you have given to us through Christ. And we confess, God, we, we daily fall short of the righteousness of God. And our only hope is that you became righteousness for us. We pray, God, that you would help us to, to discover those things, those areas where we fall short, that we might know more and more and more the joy of a God who is righteous. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.